Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glesteren and this month's episode we're going to be exploring the idea that there could be a primordial black hole somewhere on the edge of our solar system and that a fleet of spacecraft sent from Earth might be able to detect it. We'll talk to one of the scientists behind a proposal to send these spacecraft to the edge of the solar system to discover this potential primordial black hole. And we'll also hear from Mike Brown, famed Pluto killer, and the man who discovered Planet Nine. Planet Nine is a proposed planet which would explain some of the strange behaviour of objects within our solar system. Mike Brown, among others, discovered the hypothetical planet in 2018, but it hasn't yet been found. What we know is that there is something causing behaviour of bodies in our solar system which is unexplained by the planets and the mass that we currently know about. The proposal by Mike Brown and others suggests a massive planet orbiting the Sun at distances averaging over 250 times more than that of our own planet. That lack of discovery of the planet has led some to speculate that it could be something else that's causing these effects, something else whose mass is affecting things in our solar system. We'll come to that later in the podcast, but I thought it would be worth beginning by talking to Mike Brown about some of the discoveries that he's made before he discovered Planet Nine. Mike Brown is an American astronomer who's been Professor of Planetary Astronomy at Caltech since 2003. He was part of the team that discovered the dwarf planet Eris, more massive than Pluto, and he's the author of the book How I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming. In a series of surveys for distant objects orbiting the Sun, he's credited with the discovery or co-discovery of 29 minor planets. A minor planet is anything, really, that's orbiting our sun that isn't a comet or a planet. To discover one such object is exciting enough. I began by asking Mike Brown about how it feels to discover 29. It's it's pretty fun, I have to say. It, it was nice to be in the right place at the right time. The right The right time being... The Kuiper Belt had just been discovered, but we didn't know any of the large objects there. And nobody else really was thinking very hard about how to find the large objects. I I started this back in about 1998. Uh, 1998, people had found kind of a smattering of small objects out there um, beyond Neptune. And it seemed clear that there must be large ones too, but nobody knew really how to do the job right to to look for these things. And so we put together a a camera on a telescope and realized that it was it was it was crude. If we if you looked at it now, you would think, oh my God, this is this is garbage. I can't believe anybody was using this thing. But it was it was painful, but it was good enough to scan the whole sky and look and we got to we got to find all the biggest, brightest ones while nobody else was even looking. It was uh, yeah. it's a it's it's fun to just find that sweet spot right then. Um, because if it had been Ten years later, they would have all been found by by other big surveys, but uh, we we snuck in there and found them all while no one was looking. It's just oh, super, super fun. It's fun to find them. It's fun to get to name them. But the really interesting part to me is that you 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 get to learn about them. I can imagine. I mean, there's one of my favorites is Haumea. I mean, this is, for those who don't know, a probable dwarf planet. 
Out Beyond Neptune. And one of the ones that you discovered, I imagine it's one of your favorites too. We pieced that story together bit by bit by first finding it, realizing that it's rotating um, faster than any other known large object in the solar system and thinking, well, that's weird. Then we realized, we, we measured how much it weighed and, and how big it was. So we, we, we measured its density um, and it has, has the density of a rock. But then we realized when we looked at, looked at it, it looks like just an ice cube. So it's like this ice cube with the density of a rock that made no sense. We realized it's because it's all rock on the inside with just a thin layer of ice on the outside because the ice got blasted off in this impact. And then we found the moons and said, yeah, these must be from the impact too. And we, we talked to people about this impact. They're like, nah, that's crazy. That could never happen. And then we found those other chunks of ice in orbit around the sun in the same, it's in, they're in the same orbit as Haumea, just they're blasted off in a different place. So it's, it was just, it was just such a great detective story and so fun putting it together uh, over the course of maybe five years after that discovery. That, that, that really was, you know, one of the highlights of, of getting to understand these objects. Talking of detective stories, Planet Nine. Planet Nine, uh, there's, there are a lot of different starting places on, on where you would, you would start saying that the hints were coming in. Um, but I, w- I would say the first hint that there was something going on out there um, came from this survey. That, um, and it was the discovery of this one object, um, Sedna. Uh, Sedna is named after the, the Inuit goddess of the, of the sea. She lives in this ice cave at the bottom of the ocean. And this thing was the coldest object that had ever been discovered at the time. So it seemed like a good name for this object. And the weird thing about Sedna is it, it was the first object that we had discovered in the solar system whose orbit we couldn't explain using only the things we knew about the solar system. So, so every other object we see out in the Kuiper belt, in the asteroid belt, the planets, everything else, they all make sense. The, the asteroids are on all these crazy orbits because they're small and they're being pushed around by planets. The Kuiper belt is the same way. All the objects in the Kuiper belt are small. They're pushed around by Neptune. Sedna was so far away and never, and never came close to Neptune that it had to have been pushed around by something. It's on this very elongated orbit that takes 10,000 years to go around the sun. Something had to have tossed it out onto that orbit, but, but it, but it couldn't be Neptune because it never came close to Neptune. So as soon as we discovered it, we thought, wow, this is, this is weird. What, what happened? Clearly some other objects, some other big gravitational force has interacted with the solar system. What is it? We, we thought we knew the answer. We thought at the time that it must have been stars early on when the solar system was formed. And so we started looking for more objects like Sedna to try to understand how those stars had pushed objects around early on. And um, we never found any. We didn't find any. We now know why, but at the time we thought it's weird that Sedna seems to be the only one. Um, the story then continued on. Other people started looking too, including uh, a, a astronomer who had um, worked with me as a, as a postdoc and had helped find Sedna. And he too was looking for these very distant objects. And they found a second one, which was good that there was a second of these very distant objects. But then, then they realized something kind of strange going on, which was that all of the most distant objects, not just these two really distant ones, but all of the most distant objects were lined up in this bizarre parameter called argument of perihelion. Argument of perihelion means nothing to 
most of the 4.5 billion people on this earth. Yeah. There's probably a, a hundred people who even like be like, oh yeah, argument of perihelion. I, I, think, <laughs> I didn't really even know what it meant at the time. And I certainly didn't know what it meant that all these things were lined up in argument of perihelion. But the analogy, so I've, I've thought really hard about how to explain it's, it. So what, what they said when they found this lining up an argument of perihelion was, wow, that's weird. It must be a planet out there that's causing this argument of perihelion lining up. And the answer is, it cannot be a planet lining up argument of perihelion. The reason, the reason is because argument of perihelion is this weird relative angle that, that I've, after much work, here's, here's my best analogy to what argument of perihelion is like. So, so imagine that you're walking down, uh, walking across a plaza and you're looking 45 degrees to your right side. Argument of perihelion is, is, is a relative angle. So it's, it's like, that 45 degrees that you're looking, you're walking this way, but you're looking this way. So we'll say that's a 45 degree. Now imagine people walking in all directions across the plaza, but each one is looking 45 degrees to the right side. They're all lined up in argument of perihelion. And if you, if you looked at all those people, you would think, what the heck is going on? Why, why, what, what could possibly make them all look 45 degrees to the right side. They're not looking at anything in particular. They're just all looking the same. Argument of perihelion is the same way. There's, there's no way to line up part argument of perihelion by anything in the solar system. So, so actually, most people, when they saw this paper that, that these guys wrote, just thought it was wrong. They thought, ah, you know, there's something fishy with the data. These guys don't know what they're talking about. I, I knew these guys. I, know that, I knew that they were, knew what they were talking about, that these things really were lined up. But it's like, it can't be can't be a planet. It doesn't work that way. That's not the way the physics works. So this is when we started looking to it, um, we being me and my colleague who I, I point down the hall, except that now he's at his house and I'm in my house. His house <laughs> is just down, down, the, down the hill here. Uh, we started looking at it. Constantine Batigan and I started looking at it and we realized that they had overlooked the most fundamental thing that was really going on, which was it is true that all of the objects are sort of lined up in argument of perihelion, but it's more true that they're lined up in what's called longitude of perihelion. They both have the word perihelion, so people get confused, but they're very different things. Longitude of perihelion is essentially the direction that everybody's walking in. So suddenly, it's not that everybody's walking in different directions. Everybody's walking in the same direction and looking 45 degrees to the right side. I, without even knowing what these things mean, I think you can tell that that means something very different. That means they're looking at something. There's something over there. And in the same way, gravity can do that. If, if, if everything is lined up and everything is lined up this way, that's something a giant planet to do. So that was when we knew we were on to something. And we started down the road of, of looking to see if we could uh, explain the physics of how you can have a planet line up this longitude of perihelion and argument of perihelion. If you haven't quite followed that analogy, it's worth going back to listen again. But to simplify it, a paper noticed something very odd about the objects in our solar system, which didn't seem to be possibly caused by a planet. But Mike Brown and others looked deeper into the data and found a way that you could, in fact, explain it by a planet. That planet, of course, being Planet Nine. It works. Um, you need a you need a planet that's on a very elongated orbit that's 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 keeping those objects all lined up this way. You need a planet that's tilted in its orbit compared to the planets of the solar system. That's what kind of gives it that forty five degree um, angle. 
and you need a planet that's big. Uh, you need a planet that's something like six times more massive than the Earth. Whoa, okay. So this is not some, you know, slightly larger than Pluto. Let's all argue whether it's a planet or not. This is, this is the fifth largest planet in our solar system. Um, so we proposed this idea four and a half years ago, and we said a couple things. We said, look, if it's true, um, here, here's the evidence. Oh, the evidence was pretty good. Um, but if it's true, there should, uh, we should find more and more of these objects that are lined up this way with their heads tilted this way. We have. Uh, everything so far that we've found in the four and a half years since then continues to point to this one object. And what's, what's fun is that we have, we have now realized, um, as we've been working through uh, more of the, the physics, we've realized that, that an object, a big massive object like that, would have other consequences in the solar system that we have now started to see, that we, didn't, we didn't, hadn't been looking for at first, but, um, but they really do this, uh, make so that all these other things happen. So when I look at it, it seems pretty clear that for all these different things that are happening in the solar system, there really has to be a giant planet out there uh, affecting things the way that, that okay. uh, we originally said. Can you give me maybe one or two of the other things? So there, there are other details um, about how the solar system uh, is put together. One of them is that there are these strange, it's, it's objects on strange orbits. It's not strange objects, but it's objects on strange orbits. So there's a set of objects that are on um, orbits that are 90 degree angle to the, plane of the solar system. All the planets are in, in this one plane and some things are tilted by a little bit uh, here and there because they've been pushed around by the gravitational pulls of the planets. But then there are some really odd ones that nobody had any explanation for that are coming in at 90 degrees. Not, not exactly, but you know, some, some really high angle. And the planets can't do that. They, they can't twist those orbits onto such an extreme uh, angle. And so, so those objects had just been completely unexplained. And we realized accidentally, really, uh, that Planet Nine makes those all day long. So, so Planet Nine will take, because it's so far away and on such an eccentric orbit, it, will, it has the, the, the sort of lever arm to slowly twist the orbits of objects that come out near it. So you get these objects that are on these um, 90 degree inclined orbits. They, they go in very specific spots too. You know, I, I talked about all the, everybody walking in one direction down the plaza. These twisted orbits are all at right angles. So they're all walking at right angles and their orbits are twisted by 90 degrees. So, so that was a prediction that we didn't even realize was a prediction of the theory. And then we realized, oh my God, this is actually true. These objects exist. Nobody had ever understood where they had come from before. Yeah. The answer always seems to be, oh yeah, actually, Planet Nine works pretty well. So how, how much do you know about the orbit? I'd say we have a pretty good idea of, of what the orbit is. So the reason we know what the orbit is is because um, we can use those objects in the Kuiper belt that are all lined up to, to help us point in the direction of the orbit. So we, we, know, we know it's elongated. Uh, we know the direction of the elongation. We know it's tilted because it tilts those objects too, so we can get the direction of the tilt. Um, so we can do a pretty good job of mapping out the orbital plane of planet nine, which, which from staring on the earth, that means the swath of sky that it goes through over the course of its probably 5,000 year orbit. Um, the one thing we can't get from the data that we currently have is where in its orbit it is. We can tell you 
what its orbit looks like, but not that it's there as opposed to there, as opposed to there, as opposed to there. So we have, we have about a 20 to 30 degree swath of sky that goes all the way around the sun uh, where planet nine could be. Okay. I'd say that's good to, to be able to rule that out to a touch, such a small area, but, but that's still a pretty big area that we have to search. If it's been at its closest approach to the sun, how long would it be before it came back to that point? It's about 5,000 years. Okay. Right. Okay. So, and is it a di- are there different calculations for whether it's a rocky planet or a gassy planet? Do you know? All we know right now is, is the mass. So if, if, if the mass is about six times the, the mass of the Earth, it seems most likely it's a gassy planet, uh, but but we don't know this for sure. We don't know much about planets in this mass range. <laughs> certainly, certainly ones that are that far away too. So I, so it could be an icy planet, for example, yeah. as opposed to a, a a rocky planet. But in the end, it doesn't matter because um, gravity works the same no matter what it is. So as long as we know it's six times the mass of the Earth, we can track its orbit and we can track its effects on all the objects in the Kuiper Belt. It doesn't doesn't matter what it's made out of, and we don't really. The the our our hypothesis about Planet Nine is basically agnostic as to what it's made out of. We we can't know until we see it. We can't know what it's made out of. Okay. But we can, but we can guess. I I think it's gaseous, but that's really okay. a prejudicial guess more than anything else. Much more from Mike Brown later in the podcast. But if you go to physicsworld.com, you'll find a news article written by Marek Stevens entitled. If Planet Nine is a primordial black hole, could we detect it with a fleet of tiny spacecraft? As we've been discussing, we don't know quite what it is which has the mass that's causing those effects on things within our solar system. And there has been a proposal that it could be a primordial black hole. The idea was proposed by Jacob Schultz and James Unwin in a September 2019 paper on the archive called What If Planet Nine Is a Primordial Black Hole? In Marek Stevens' article, he discusses a paper by Ed Witten of Princeton University who proposes an aggressive search to try and find what it is that's causing these effects. Witten proposes sending hundreds or even thousands of tiny probes in the general direction of the hypothetical black hole. The idea is that the lucky few of these probes, which each weigh about 100 grams, might pass close enough to the object to cause them to accelerate slightly. Witten's idea is a variation of the Starshot project, which is a separate proposal to send ultralight probes on a 20-year journey to a nearby star, Alpha Centauri, using an Earth-bound laser array to boost the spacecraft to 20% of the speed of light. Shortly after Ed Witten's paper on Planet Nine arrived on the archive, it was added to by another paper released shortly after that by Scott Lawrence, and Ziv Rogozinski of the University of Maryland in the US suggested an alternative approach. I spoke to Ziv Rogozinski. I'm a PhD student at the University of Maryland and I study planetary science. There was a paper uh, published uh, the day before we we, we published this uh, particular paper. It was on uh, detecting a possible uh, primordial black hole in the outer solar system. And it was published by Edward Witten, who is a string theorist at Princeton. It was very curious because it was 
uncharacteristic of a prominent string theorist to be publishing a paper on planetary science. Uh, but it was on black holes, on par uh, primordial black holes, um, on detecting primordial black holes in the outer solar system. So it caught my interest because it was a, it was a very simple, uh, rudimentary brute force method, really, to uh, measure any massive perturbations in the outer solar system. There's an hypothesized planet 9 out there in the outer solar system, and there's been this huge attempt to try and find it. Uh, the, the mass of the planet is constrained somewhere between 5 and 10 Earth masses, and it's located uh, at, I think, beyond 300 AU. So it's very far away, it's very small, so it's going to be very difficult to find. And there's a paper published back in September that said that, well, if it's unlikely to detect planet 9, uh, but we know that there's a massive body out there, then there's a possibility that it could be a primordial black hole. And they propose some method of, det of detecting whether it's a, a primordial black hole or not, based on dark matter annihilation. If that method fails, then we want some brute force method to detecting planet 9, which is sending all these uh, low-mass, high-velocity uh, satellites into the outer solar system and trying to observe any perturbations, because... Uh, the black hole or a planet or whatever, it, whatever massive body out there would perturb these very light satellites. So what he proposed was to observe a time delay in the longitudinal direction. You, you send a satellite in a straight line. If it's perturbed, then... So, so the satellite also has this accurate clock on it, and it's sending a signal at any a certain particular intervals. And, and when the satellite is perturbed by some massive body, there, there's going to be some time delay just based on the, the, the change in trajectory. So it was a very simple paper, just a simple calculation. Here is an idea that I'm just throwing it out there into the ether. Uh, so I, I read this paper, I, I got very excited. So I sent this paper uh, to my friend, uh, Scott Lawrence, who's the uh, first author of this paper. And I thought he might get a, a cool kick out of it. That well, what's very interesting about the uh, the story is that that day when that paper came out, which is eight thirty um, in the afternoon on the archive, uh, I was preparing to submit a paper of my own that I've been working on for the past couple of years, and I just got a go ahead from my advisor saying that okay, paper's ready to go. You know, I, I was looking through the archive, waiting for my advisor to, to reply. I saw this paper, I read it, sent it to my friend. My my advisor sent me uh, uh, the details for my. Uh, my paper. I was working on that. It's going to edit it and do any final edits and submit it uh, to publication, uh, to peer review, really. And then Scott came back to me and said, oh, I was been filling around with this, this Planet Nine paper, and I found an improvement. Uh, rather than looking in the longitudinal direction, we look at the transverse direction, which is satellite will be perturbed. So uh, Edward Witten's paper focused on perturbations in the direction of your line of sight. But there's also going to be some perturbations on the celestial sphere, so in the plane of the of the sky. So that particular perturbation is permanent, and we could observe that at any particular time after it's perturbed. If the satellite is perturbed in the in, the, in your line of sight, you only see that time delay uh, during the perturbation. So uh, with a method that, that that we're proposing is rather than looking at the longitudinal direction, look at the at the transverse direction because that particular perturbation is permanent. And it will stay, and and, and it will stick for uh, for all time. So we worked on the, on the uh, theory. Uh, we ran the numbers, and we shown that this particular perturbation can be calculated using uh, the tools that we have here on Earth. Uh, but it's a very sensitive. It, it requires some very sensitive uh, calculations. Uh, so and and also the advantage is that we don't need these accurate clocks. We just need a beacon, and just 
a whole bunch of beacons sent out into the outer solar system and just measure uh, any changes to their trajectory. So that's our improvement. And then since then, there have been uh, other papers that have expanded on, the, on this particular work. Any of them excite you? Yeah, so there was a paper released actually a couple of days after we submitted our paper by uh, uh, Tim Huang and uh, Avi Loeb at Harvard, uh, which took into account perturbations from the interstellar medium. So the satellite will be moving through the interstellar medium, so that's gas and dust that's located in between stars, uh, and that drag will also change the uh, satellite's uh, trajectory. So we're assuming that the satellites are moving in straight lines, that it you send the satellite out there on a hyperbolic orbit, it's going to stay on that trajectory uh, until some massive orbit perturbs it. But there's gas and dust on the way that causes drag, and there's going to be magnetic fields out there, um, also due to the sun, but also due to interactions between the gas, that will also perturb the satellite's orbit. So these particular perturbations will cause some oscillations in the satellite's uh, trajectory, and that, could, and that noise could overwhelm uh, the particular signal that we're looking for. So that paper placed constraints on what, how massive the satellite needs to be to be resistant to these perturbations. And the more massive the satellite is, uh, the harder it is to accelerate it to sub-relativistic velocities. So it will take longer for the satellite to reach Planet 9 or wherever it, it, it's located. So the longer time you're spent in the interstellar medium, the more likely you this is, the satellite is susceptible to perturbations. So there's this balancing act that you need uh, to find the right mass, massive satellite and the right speed for the satellite uh, to be resistant to these perturbations, but it's a, it requires a lot of fine-tuning. So that particular method turns out it's, it's more difficult than, than we expect, but in theory it, it, it's, it's, it's still a, a viable method. Uh, and then since then there have been and then there have been other methods as well uh, uh, to detect a Planet 9. One was uh, to throw uh, these satellites out there and using them as antennas uh, to detect any dark matter annihilation around the black hole. Uh, there's another paper also co-authored by Avi Loeb and one of his students that uh, that suggested that, well, if there's, a if there's a primordial black hole out there, then it will be accreting gas and dust in the outer solar system, uh, which should produce some signals that we, could, we should be able to observe with LSST. If you're talking about your paper is sending these uh, beacons out there, how long would it take for them to get to where they need to be? Ideally, a year. Uh, so if we're sending a gram-sized uh, object 300 AU away and we're accelerated with these high-powerful lasers, it'll take about a year. We need to increase the mass of the satellite to about a kilogram so that it's less susceptible to these um, perturbations and to perturbations from the ISM, and that will take about 10 years. However, the New Horizons uh, mission took 10 years to get to Pluto, so a decade seems to be the nominal amount of time to be setting these uh, satellites. So it's not unreasonable, but it's not quick, uh, which is the whole point of this whole Breakthrough Starshot mission, which is a very quick method of, uh, of transporting satellites uh, to other objects somewhere in the solar system. So 10 years, yeah, it's going to be fast for uh, some object located in hundreds of astronomical units away from the from Earth, but it's still relatively slow for, for what we want to achieve. So if Planet Nine is a planet and not a black hole, what would you expect to see from your experiment? From our experiment, it doesn't matter if Planet Nine is a black hole or a planet. It just, all, all we care about is mass. So a massive object will perturb these satellites. Our method won't 
be able to discern whether it's a rocky body or a, black, a primordial black hole. What will determine whether it's a primordial black hole or not is if we absolutely cannot detect a massive body uh, using conventional methods, uh, but we are absolutely certain that there should be a massive body out there. So they're competing theories of whether Planet Nine is actually a, a planet or whether it's uh, due to some other effect, like a more massive Kuiper belt. Uh, but that requires some more observations, which is currently being undertaken at the moment. So if we cannot detect a Planet Nine, if we know that there's some massive object out there, we've ruled out the that there um, all the alternative uh, theories out there, and we, and we determined that there is, should be some massive body out there that's perturbing these other dwarf planets and Kuiper Belt objects and trans-Neptunian trans objects. If we can uh, determine that, but we cannot detect the planet at all through some imagery or through some occultation, then maybe it's a primordial black hole. But that is, as far as likelihood tiers, primordial black hole is on the bottom of the list. Uh, but it's fun to think about, and it's certainly a possibility. Uh, so this method that we propose is a, like the title of our paper says, it's a brute force method of trying to find uh, this planet nine. If any Earth-based detectors cannot work, let's just send all these satellites out there and just image whatever's out there in the outer solar system and hope for the best. It's certainly a wonderfully fantastic idea. And I put it to Mike Brown. Could Planet Nine, in fact, not be a planet, but a primordial black hole? Could it? Yes, because all we know is that it's six times the mass of the Earth. So it could be a black hole. It could be a planet. It could be a six Earth mass hamburger. Uh, it could be six Earth masses of, of dogs all in a big ball. You know, it doesn't, we don't know is the answer. So then you could say, okay, what is, what is the chance that it's a six Earth mass black hole? I, I, I would say the chance that it's a six Earth mass black hole is pretty close to zero. Um, it just makes no sense. It, it's, 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 a, it's a solution that is not needed. It's a solution to, to a non-problem. I, so I think that the, the reason the first idea came up that maybe it's a black hole is, is uh, because everybody kind of feels like, well, if it's a planet, we should be able to see it. So maybe we can't see it, so maybe it's a black hole. We're searching. It's just that skies are a really big place and we have not searched most of the places that we need to search. And so it's going to take a while to find it. So, um, but I think people are kind of frustrated not to have seen it yet. I know I am. Uh, and so coming up with sort of semi-crazy ideas about it. So I, I would say the black hole is a semi-crazy idea. Um, but it's true. Anything that, that you only see the gravitational effect of and don't see it itself could be a black hole. So, you know, uh, a lot of these stars, uh, a lot of these planets that we see around other stars, all we see is the gravitational effect. We see the star wobbling back and forth. Every single one of those could be a black hole too, but nobody talks about that because it's a silly idea. Um, planets are a pretty normal thing. Uh, the idea that there might be a planet on the outer edge of our solar system is, is just not that surprising so it's not a big stretch in how we think about the solar system as opposed to we don't even know that six earth mass black holes exist we don't know why a black hole would get captured around the the earth you know that it's just like such a weird stretch of things that we don't know anything about as opposed to such a normal idea even even though 
we hadn't thought about the fact that there was a planet out there for a long time. The idea that there might be a planet out there is like, oh yeah, that's actually not so weird. We see other stars with planets at those distances. It's just, there's just, there's just nothing inherently surprising about the possibility. Um, so you just, the, the idea of invoking a black hole is just, I, 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 the first time I ever saw it, I thought it was one of these uh, April Fool's papers that people write because it's funny. And I thought it was funny. It is, it's very funny. Um, the first paper that it came out and also showed was, was, was great. I think it got a lot of attention because it had the, the world's best figure in it, which was uh, a plot that when you, if you printed it out on a piece of paper, it showed the actual size of the black hole. The black, the, the black hole itself, the event horizon of the black hole for a six earth mass black hole is about this big. <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> which is, which is just kind of funny. I mean, it was a great paper. I thought it was hilarious. And so somebody, somebody 3D printed me a large black sphere, um, which I now have sitting on my desk in my office. Um, here, here is planet nine, the black hole. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's a cute and funny idea that's just not true, mm. I would say. So when people are proposing ideas of missions to go and test whether it's a black hole, what do you say? you can never send a mission to test whether it's a black hole because all these missions to test whether it's a black hole are to uh, send a mission in the direction of planet nine and then measure the gravity as you go by to show that it's a black hole. If it's a black, if it, if it were a black hole, which it's not, we won't know which direction it's in um, because we won't see it. So until we see it, we can't send a mission there. Um, if it's a black hole, I mean, maybe eventually we will have enough data that we can pinpoint where it is anyway. Mm. Um, but if we could pinpoint it and still not see it, then, you know, we would have to start thinking about these crazy things. But it's, this is, this is such a, the idea is so crazy and unlikely that uh, it's hard to take any of these suggestions very seriously at this point. So when is it possible that we might actually be able to find it? Uh, I, I mean, tomorrow we could. So, you know, it's, it's, this, it's this complete, uh, I was trying to think of a, a better analogy than needle in a haystack, except that's, that's probably the, the, the right analogy. There is, there is one needle in a vast haystack. And if you knew exactly where it was, you know, it's not, it's not hard to find it. Um, it's not hard to see it once you know where it is, but it's hard to find it. I mean, maybe, maybe an equally good one is if you uh, take one grain of sand and color it differently and throw it on the beach and try to find it. Uh, it's easy to see it. You can pick up and see all the grains of sand once you know it. And if I told you exactly where it was and handed it to you, you could say, yeah, that's it. We just don't know. Uh, we, we are systematically combing across the grains of sand on the beach looking for it right now. So when are we going to find it? Um, it could be, it could be tomorrow. Uh, we're, we're, we have searches underway right this very second. Um, I'm, I'm actually fairly convinced we're going to find it in already existing data that, that there, there are enough large astronomical surveys that have been going on recently that it would surprise me if pictures of planet nine don't exist already. Yeah. It, it might not be true, um, but it would surprise me. You know, every, every even moderately large object that we have found in the outer solar system was observed accidentally many times before its discovery. Pluto was first imaged in 1915, 1916, something like that. So a good 15 years before its discovery. Eris, the one that's more massive than Pluto that, that I 
discovered in, in um, 2003, after the fact, we went back and found it in photographic plates taken in the 1950s. Um, and, and all these objects like that, so Uranus, Neptune, they were all observed before their discoveries. I bet Planet Nine is the same way. I bet yeah. we will find it. We, we may not find it first in old data because sorting through old data is hard. Um, but once, if we find it by just looking through current data, I bet we can go back and find null data. But we might be able to find it in old data. And one of the things that's happened uh, in these last couple months as all the telescopes have shut down and we've been unable to do searches is we have, we have finally done what we intended to do all along, which has taken the time to start really writing the algorithms to sift through old data to see if we can, if we can uh, mm. find it in those. So cool. like literally right now, I have uh, banks of computers working on data and I look at it every morning thinking, is it there? Is it there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. so far the answer is not yet, yeah. but it might be. I mean, could be that in the time we've been talking, I can go look and say, oh yeah, there it was right there. Yeah. Probably not, but could be. Yeah. That would so, be cool. I'd like that. So when are we going to find it? I don't know. I don't know when we'll find it. If it's a little bit fainter than average, you know, we, have, we have a prediction on how bright it should be depending on where it is in the sky. If it's, if it's average of our predictions, it should be pretty easy to find. If it's, if it's uh, brighter than our, our averages, it'll be super easy to find. Probably should have found it already. So, but if, if it's fainter than our predictions, or on the faint, so our predictions are a range. And so if, if it's on the faint end of our range, it'll be harder. And that it may require dedicated telescopes instead of sorting through old data. Um, I do think that those, that dedicated telescope uh, will eventually be the, the Vera Rubin telescope, the LSST. And uh, it is hard for me to imagine that, that that telescope will not find Planet Nine within its first year of operation. I, I can't imagine how it could hide from, from that telescope. When is that first year of operation? It's supposed to be 2022, but I think things are all delayed, so nobody quite knows what's happening these days. Oh. But, but it's, you know, I used to say that, and that seemed like a really long time from now. And that, that is not seeming all that far away these days. I put Mike Brown's response to Zeev Rogozinski, and he wasn't too put out. Well, like I said, it's very uh, unlikely that this uh, object... If it, if it is Planet Nine, which it possibly is, it's very unlikely that that's a primordial black hole because a we have it, it's hypothesized through uh, through uh, uh, cosmological theories, but we've never detected uh, one of them. Sure, maybe our solar if there are primordial black holes out there, our solar system may have captured one of them, but uh, it's also unlikely compared to the fact that it could be just some rocky object that has been that has formed in our solar system. It's much more likely that uh, any perturbations within our solar systems, any massive per uh, perturbers in our solar system was formed in our solar system. Uh, and that's probably a, a rocky body. Uh, also considering the fact that we've, we've been finding all these super earths and other exoplanets, this planet nine could, could be that missing super earth in our solar system. So it's most likely a, a planet, a rocky super earth like planet. It's less likely, but also uh, pretty likely that it isn't Planet Nine. It's a more massive Kuiper belt that is also perturbing that that could also perturb these uh, trans-Neptunian objects. Uh, what's even less likely is a primordial black hole, but 
it, it's it's the probability is is not zero. I had one last question for Mike Brown before I let him get back to that data trying to find Planet Nine. I'm just wondering if you've thought of a name for it yet. No. Um, <laughs> Because, you know, everybody has their own uh, superstitions. Uh, astronomers are certainly uh, not immune to them. And, and I have a very strongly held superstition that if you, if you name it ahead of time, you won't find it. If you even think about names ahead of time, you won't find it. Um, and so we really honestly have not tried to think anything about a name. And people try to suggest it to us and I stick my fingers in my ears and, and don't listen. So no, when we find it, then we'll, then we'll see what happens. Yeah. But, uh, but for now, no names. Far be it from me to suggest a name. So, Mike, you can listen on. And there's no need to cover your ears. Because even though I did ask Zeev, he couldn't quite find an answer. That's a good question. <laughs> it's not something that I've really thought about. But we're going to keep with the convention of maybe Greek and Roman gods then hmm that's an interesting one because there's so many possibilities there we've already named so many moons and planets after greek and roman gods and now we're expanding to other mythologies so any one of them that are any mythological creature that is sneaky or or likes to stay in the shadows any mythological creature from any culture, uh, either Greek or Roman or otherwise, that I, I would be happy with, with, with one of those. I can't think of a name at the moment, but as far as theme, so, something related to some creature that's hiding in the shadows. Uh, there, there, there are some transatlantic objects out there that they call them. I haven't been named yet, but they're called goblins, and may, maybe something similar to that. Uh, but I. I I can't really think of a name at the moment. I hope it won't be too long before we can satisfy the curiosity of these astronomers. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. I know I will be following the Planet Nine story, and I can't think of a better way to do that than following Physics World on the Physics World website, physicsworld.com. And thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next month when we'll be looking at something to do with physics and cars. Physics World.